Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Thank you for joining us for Part 18 of Discovering the Old Testament. This will probably be our last session in which we discuss the Torah, although we could spend a good long time there. There are a couple of subjects that perplex a lot of modern readers of the Old Testament that I want to touch on today. The first is the sacrificial system. For many readers, this just looks like a system for killing a lot of animals for reasons that aren't clear, made worse by foreign terms like burnt offering or wave offering or related stuff that looks both arbitrary and complicated. The second item is the notion of sin and repentance in ancient Israel. There is an idea that sins could be expiated by offering the right sacrifice, and once that smoke goes up, the sins go bye-bye. In fact, that's not what is going on, but we'll get to that presently. Before we get started, there's an observation that I need to make. Israelite religion in the Old Testament does not have anything that we would recognize as systematic theology. You won't find the assumptions and ideas laid out in some organized Summa Theologica Hebraica a la Thomas Aquinas or Augustine. That doesn't mean there wasn't an organized body of theological work. It's just that if it actually existed, we don't have it. The theology is there, but it's encoded into the rituals and laws that have come down to us. That means we must tease apart these practices and laws to get at the assumptions behind them. The task is complicated by differing schools of thought that change over centuries, but in spite of that, scholars now have a fairly good idea of the rationale behind ancient Israelite religious practices. The sacrificial system is yet another in a series of balancing acts throughout Israel's history, in which they adopt prevailing polytheistic cultural metaphors and practices to a new monotheistic model. If you look at the larger historical picture of sacrifice rituals across the ancient Near East, in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, you see that at a basic level they are, as pioneer Assyriologist Leo Oppenheim put it, the care and feeding of the gods. The temples of the surrounding peoples were considered to be literally the dwelling places of the gods, and the role of the priests who worked there was to attend to the resident deities. This meant providing food and incense that the gods needed to survive. In fact, when one goes back to the ancient Mesopotamian flood stories, one reason why the gods decided to keep the humans around, even though they weren't supposed to survive the flood, was because they realized that they missed all those yummy sacrifices the humans sent smoking upwards where, the text relates, the gods gathered around them like flies. Other texts imply that the gods depended on sacrifices for their continued health and vitality. The pagan sanctuaries also had to be protected and kept pure to allow the god or gods to remain. In those foreign systems, impurity was believed to be the effect of malevolent, demonic forces, as we discussed in an earlier podcast. Israel's god, by contrast, is self-existent. He doesn't need anyone to give him offerings at all. He does not require feeding to stay alive, but he apparently did appreciate 
the sacrifice as a gesture of worship. It's true that phrases like a sweet savor to the Lord, referring to the smoke of a sacrifice, persist as verbal vestiges of a different understanding of God and sacrifice, but the instructions regarding sacrifice in Leviticus go to considerable lengths to avoid any implication that God needs or draws power from sacrifices in any way. One way the Israelite sacrificial system does this is by the placement of the altar of sacrifice. The temple itself is a longish building divided internally into a shrine and a holy of holies. The former takes up about two-thirds of the space, and the Holy of Holies takes the remaining third. The shrine has an offering table, along with the branched lampstand called the menorah, and other sacred objects. Outside the temple proper is a large court that takes up most of the space of the temple complex. This is where the sacrificial altar stands. The significance here is that in other cultic systems, the sacrifice offered to a god was done close to the location where the god was supposed to reside so that the god could consume the sacrifices. Further, this ritual was done where no one but the officiating priests could see it. The Israelite practice was just the opposite. Not only was the sacrifice offered and conducted further away from the Holy of Holies, the Israelite temple sacrifices took place out in the open, where everyone could watch and take part. Leviticus is quite specific. The rules of the sacrificial system and all the procedures were to be taught to every Israelite. This is a major difference from other texts recovered from Assyrian and Babylonian temple bureaucracies. Not only were the common people, including the ones bringing the offering, not allowed to watch, the very nature of the rituals themselves were carefully guarded secrets for the clergy's eyes only. Another difference was that foreign cults had many different kinds of officiators. There were high priests, lamentation priests, exorcists, musicians, various colors and flavors of diviners, and other functionaries. In Israel, you had the high priest and the rest of the priests, and that's all. There were also the Levites, who guarded the sanctuary and did the heavy lifting when transporting the portable tabernacle and the ark. Priests were also more technicians when it came to sacrifice. People brought the desired sacrifice, and the priests took care of those parts that needed special technical expertise. But the person bringing a sacrifice was also expected to take part in the non-altar parts of the ritual, again, much different from the surrounding systems, which always barred non-priests from their sacred enclosures. Another difference is that the priest, in addition to the functionary role, was a teacher with the responsibility to ensure that every Israelite understood the law and practices that went with it. I hesitate to say that Israelite sacrificial cult democratized sacrificial worship. Priests were hereditary, after all, but it's perhaps more correct to say that it became more transparent. But there is a larger issue here, something we have discussed before. Ancient Israel's monotheism comprised a conscious, conspicuous effort to purge their religious world of any and all competing metaphysical entities. No demons, no peers for God. You will find nothing in the Old Testament about casting out demons, 
no instructions for exorcism. It's just not there. Later, during the intertestamental period, foreign ideas about demons and demonic power crept back into Israelite religion. By the time of the New Testament, all those beliefs had come roaring back into the religious mainstream. Like his pagan counterparts, however, the temple of Adonai can still be polluted. But, and this is a very important point, while demons and demonic forces cannot defile God's temple or tabernacle, humans can. A ritually impure human, by entering the sanctuary, can literally drive God away. Humans also have the acknowledged ability to defy God, otherwise known as free will. In effect, the Israelite priestly theology replaces demons with humans. That creates some very interesting implications. We saw in our discussion of the creation stories in Genesis that humans play a significant role in the process of creation. Humans have a responsibility also specified in Genesis to take care of creation. We've also seen that human affairs were believed to have an impact on the cosmic order as a whole. That belief extends well beyond Israelite religion, by the way, and turns up in many other ancient religious systems. And, during our discussion of purity and impurity, we saw that the whole regimen is a symbolic system to drive home the basic message of the power of life triumphant over the power of death. You can't get much more cosmic than that. But the real takeaway point is that humans now have a much deeper responsibility. Their actions can restrain or unleash the very powers of life or death, depending on their adherence to God's commandments. The evil in the world that one might ascribe to infernal powers now sits squarely on the shoulders of humanity. It demands a different standard of behavior and ethics. Israelite religion took great pains to distinguish itself from its pagan counterparts in other ways. One of these was carrying out rituals in profound silence. This was to prevent any hint that priests conducting a sacrifice were engaging in any kind of incantation mongering. This was a really big deal in other systems. In fact, the wrong word spoken at the wrong time, even inadvertently, was believed capable of bringing about the failure of an incantation or even a disastrous unintended effect. There is a phrase that appears at the head of some Babylonian magical texts that reads, Lishanu lemutu anaachati liziz. Literally translated, it says, Let the evil tongue stand aside. The meaning is, for everyone not speaking an incantation, to shut the hell up lest a stray word wreck the whole business. But while Israelite priests did their business in silence, except when offering intercessory prayers, there was music and psalms and even prayers that the laity could and often did offer. 
This totally flies in the face of the idea that the sacred precinct was some kind of magical minefield where unguarded words were thought to be dangerous. Let's take a closer look at some of the sacrifices themselves. Obviously, a detailed examination of the entire system is well beyond the scope of this podcast, but a few representative examples should give you a pretty general idea of how it worked. Israelite sacrificial animals were restricted to goats, sheep, and bovines. They had to be males and perfect, unblemished specimens. Later, a rule allowed pigeons as an offering, and the rule that they had to be unblemished males was waived. The reason for this was to allow offerings by the poor who couldn't afford the larger, more expensive animals. Offerings of cereal also served the same purpose. But there are three categories of offerings that I'd like to look at. The whole offering, or burnt offering, the purification offering, and the well-being offering, also called the peace offering in the King James Version. Burnt offerings appear to have been mostly a Northwest Semitic practice. We find them in northern Syria and the surrounding area of Canaan, Phoenicia, and early Greece. We don't see it in Mesopotamia, Egypt, or among the pre-Islamic Arabian nations. We do also find them among the Hittites in Asia Minor. A burnt offering, sometimes called a whole offering, did just what it sounds like it did. Apart from portions for the priest, the entire animal was burned up. The purpose of a burnt offering is harder to pin down. We see them used for every kind of emotional and psychological need on the part of the offerer, but its main thrust is entreaty. It is an act designed to get God's attention, to end a plague, or obtain guidance, or any number of other needs. As time went on, the burnt offering evolved into more specific variations. Purification offerings present us with a bit of a puzzle. One problem we have is that the term sin offering is often used to describe these, and the term is wrong for several reasons. These were not about sin as such, but it was about purity. It raises the question of what was being purified and what was being purged. We've noted elsewhere that impurity in Israel was temporary and needed only time and washing to remove. An examination of the mechanics of the purification offering show that the blood of the offering was applied to the sanctuary and its sancta, but never to the offerer. Blood was believed to have a purging effect, so the purification effected by the offering was not the purification of the person making the sacrifice, but of the sanctuary itself. The offering was to purge any inadvertent impurity that had passed to the sanctuary. Another aspect of the purification offering was the inadvertent sin. Unresolved sins could also pollute the sanctuary. This might be why the sacrifice gets the incorrect name sin offering, but it only applies to the unintentional mishaps or mistakes. Inadvertent sin for which the sinner felt remorse or guilt were considered forgiven both because of their inadvertent nature and the remorse on, par on the part of the sinner. But the consequences remained, and those had to be purged by the purification offering. One might well ask, what about intentional sins? Israelite sacrificial practice has no offering to expiate intentional sins. The sinner had to repent, 
make restitution and reconciliation where possible, and only then would an offering be acceptable. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, tells his listeners that they should leave their gift at the altar, go and make things right with their brother or sister, and then come back and offer their gift, he reflects a fundamental understanding of the relationship between sin, repentance, and expiation for consequences in ancient Israel. The last offering, the well-being offering, is known as a shalamim in Hebrew, with its obvious connection to the Hebrew word shalom. While that explains the older translation of peace offering, it doesn't really encompass the full range of meanings found in the word shalom, which do pertain to this particular offering. Shalom also describes wholeness, health, vitality, rejoicing, and, to a lesser extent, success and good fortune. The Shalamim was the only offering found in ancient Israel in which the householder who brought the offering was allowed to consume it. Indeed, that was the whole point. To put it in modern terms, the Shalamim was an occasion for holding a great big kosher barbecue. It was specifically intended to provide meat for the table for some joyful occasion. Once again, we see a total inversion from the surrounding peoples for whom sacrifices were for the care and feeding of the gods. This time, it was the donor who gets fed. Actually, it was more than just the donor. There were particularly strict rules surrounding the sacrifice. It had to be totally consumed within a short period of time, or the whole thing became very, very unclean. The rationale here was that the person offering the shlamim therefore had a major incentive to share the offering with as many people as possible. Consuming an entire bull, for example, in a couple of days definitely requires a team effort. If any was left over at the end of the period, the remainder was burned. While the Israelite sacrificial system seems very foreign and strange from our modern perspective, this is just one more example of the warning I issued in the very first podcast. The world of the Old Testament is a very, very strange place. Please check your preconceived notions at the door. If you look at this material long enough, however, you start to see the emergence of values that seem quite modern. In this case, we see the innovation that religious leadership is best conducted in the open, without secrets, and with a minimum of exclusivity. Divine service is as much or more for the worshippers than it is for any clerical bureaucracy. In the later years of the Second Temple period, these and similar ideas faded away to be replaced by imperatives of elitism, power, and prestige, and, once again, contributed to the failure of a covenantal society. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. 
Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.